You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by archaeologist Annalise Morris. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. So archaeologist, anthropologist, is there a difference? Indeed. An archaeologist is a kind of anthropologist. So anthropologists, uh, as anthropologists, we study human culture and all kinds of places and times and sort of how people make cultures and how those cultures interact with each other and the kinds of different things that make us human that, um, that are part of our societies. So archaeologists are anthropologists of the past or uh, specifically who work with material objects or, or things. So archaeologists sort of use materials and materialities to think more about people and their past and what their people's stuff can tell us about their past. So I've had a few paleontologists on the show. Is Mm -hmm. there a difference? When does archaeology become paleontology? Um, So archaeology is different from paleontology in that we are dealing with um, sort of more recent, the more recent human past, and specifically the human past as people's things, as opposed to fossils and that kind of stuff. So archaeologists tend to study post uh, a much later time period than paleontologists. And I've heard people say that in archaeology, a lot of the time you're like looking at people's garbage. Is that mm-hmm. is that the case? Indeed. People's garbage is one of the things that we look at. So Um, We look at all kinds of material traces that people leave behind. What's really cool about archaeology is um, you can even look at people's archaeological materials in the present. Some archaeologists look at buildings or landscapes or or the way people modify the world around them. So you can look at people's garbage. Um, People's garbage is interesting because it's not created with an agenda in mind, right? Like you don't throw away your trash and it's like, hmm, in 50 years, someone's going to know all of the snack foods I was eating. In fact, you throw things in your trash because you're like, I really don't want my notebook roommates to know that I stopped a jack-in-the-box on the way home. <laughs> and so it's a people's kinds of secrets and, and thrown away things that really reflect more intimate aspects of their daily lives. But we look at other stuff, too. We look at house foundations and sort of what we call activity areas, which are places associated with where people live. So really anywhere where people leave their stuff is fair game. And how did you get interested in archaeology or anthropology mm-hmm. generally? It's actually one of those things that I've always been interested in since I was a kid. When I was a really little kid, I actually wanted to be a paleontologist. And then I started learning a little bit more about that, what that was. And I thought that people and their culture were more, more fascinating to me than, um, than the deep, deep past. So I was just really interested in the past. I was, as a kid, I also really loved history. And I really love old stuff. And I really loved, like, you know thinking about old antiques and old things and like how people lived in the past. So when I was in high school, I had a really wonderful physics and chemistry teacher who was, you know, really encouraging to his students to, you know, go to college and and, um, kind of branch out from sort of traditional disciplines. So I asked him, I'm like, I think I'd really like to be an archaeologist. I don't really know what that means. (laughs) How do I get a degree in that? What do I do with that? And he actually had a friend who was an archaeologist that he gave me her email address. So I emailed her and she said, it turns out that archaeologists are anthropologists. And at the time, I didn't know what that meant. But I took her word for it. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go get a degree in anthropology. And that sort of all branched out from there. That's great. And you, where, where did you get your degree? Uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I got my undergrad degree actually in anthropology and comparative literature. 
Oh, very nice. So uh, there must be some overlap between those disciplines then? There's actually a lot of overlap between those disciplines. A lot of the classes that I teach actually incorporates historic literature as well as archaeological case studies. And um, a lot of the the philosophies and critiques and um, critical studies that we use in comparative literature, we also use in anthropology to sort of think really think critically about the ways people construct their societies. And so before the show started, you were telling me about some of the places you've done mm-hmm. work. Uh, can you share those with the audience? Yeah, I've, I've worked in a few different places. Um, my very first field school was actually in the north of Ireland in County Donegal, just outside of a little town called Letterkenny. And we were working on a, a famine that ha- or a cottage that had been abandoned during the Irish potato famine, which was really interesting. And then I came back to Illinois, and I've worked in Illinois on a variety of different projects. One is called the New Philadelphia Project, which explores the first town that was planned and platted by a free African-American in the United States. And then my own dissertation project is in Illinois, but I've also worked in the British Virgin Islands on um, different plantations there. So you said a field school in Ireland. Mm-hmm. What is a field school? What do you do? So if you're an undergraduate and you are really interested in archaeology, at some point you have to go out into the world and touch some old stuff. Um, you learn how to do this by going to a field school. So it's essentially any, anywhere between three and six weeks out somewhere at an archaeological site. And it's where we teach people essentially how to do archaeology. So you'll learn the basis of the basics of, you know, how do we how do we dig these square holes? How do we make them? What are the tools that we use? Um, you learn about mapping, you learn about excavation, about cleaning artifacts and curating artifacts. And so that's essentially it's your introduction into the field. And there must Berkeley must have some field school opportunities or at least flyers hanging around mm-hmm. here on campus. Indeed, Berkeley has a lot of different field school opportunities. There's usually one at least every other summer or every summer that uh, um, the Berkeley um, Anthropology is through the Anthropology Department. One of the professors will be running a site, um, usually somewhere in California sometimes, um, but others, other professors have worked in different parts of the world. Um, but also the graduate students, a lot of the graduate students in archaeology run their own projects. So you can also, if you have a working relationship as potentially a URAP student or if you've had a GSI that you really like or have worked really well with, a lot of graduate students will take undergraduates with them into the field and essentially do the same thing, sort of teach them the introduction to how to do archaeology. So after you go into the field and you mm-hmm. dig stuff up or, you know, all that archaeology stuff. What do you do with it? Do you take it back to a lab or how does that work? That really depends on where in the world you are. A lot of places have pretty intense laws about what things can leave their countries or not. So some of it you have to process in the field or catalog it in the field. I work in North America, so that works out pretty well for me. So I bring the artifacts back to the lab here at Berkeley where I analyze, curate, and catalog them. So that means I just look at everything, I make sure it's all clean, I figure out what it is and where it came from, which can be complicated in historic archaeology because in the 19th century there was lots of different stuff coming into the U.S. So you get a wide variety of things. And then if any sort of preservation needs to be done, for example, preservation of of ferric metal or of iron, I do that in the lab as well. And I have had some undergraduates who have worked with me through that process also. And then um, when I'm finished, my collections will go to the Illinois State Museum. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, you, you mentioned you've been working in Illinois for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, that's because you're from there. Mm-hmm. But you have a more direct connection to your field sites. Indeed, yeah. So my field sites are actually the farmsteads of my direct ancestors. When I was thinking about finding a site, 
I was talking with the people in my community about, you know, what I do about archaeology and thinking about the past. And a couple of them said to me, well, that's all really interesting. So when are you going to bring that back here? We have a lot of really old sites here. And I was like, well, that is a really good point. Why don't we do something here? That would be really interesting, especially because a large part of um, the work that I do is trying to make archaeology relevant to the public and figuring out how we can make archaeology more accessible to people. So I work in black communities in Illinois, and black history in Illinois isn't necessarily always part of the sort of well-known mainstream narrative. There have been a lot of black pioneers and a lot of there are a lot of black communities in Illinois that have been there since before Illinois was a state. Um, but this isn't necessarily something that's sort of, you know, part of the conversation when students learn about Illinois history. So part of my project is sort of how do we bring that narrative to people? And but also since when you're thinking about when working with black history, so much of it isn't written. There's not a lot, not the same amount of sort of direct historical accounts. So archaeology can bring us a lot of knowledge about our ancestors' past that's not necessarily available any other way. So I really wanted to do a project where the people in the community were interested in what we would find and really wanted to be part of that. And I had that where I was from, and I was really interested in that process. And so it seemed to me like a really good first project. And it really came out of the community's interest in doing the project there. Okay. Well, uh, tell us. Yeah, you got you got me on the edge of my seat. Now. Tell me about the project. What exactly does it entail? So um, part of what we were interested in learning about is sort of how long have our ancestors been here and what were their lives like in the past? So our ancestors came to Illinois actually from South Carolina. in 70, We know they were there in 1796 because they um, petitioned the government not to have to pay taxes on themselves. They said, hey, we're free people of color. We're poor were farmers, and they were essentially having to pay taxes on themselves as their own property, since slavery was still, you know, a thing at that time. And so the government said, nope, that's cute. We don't care. You still have to pay taxes on yourselves. And they were like, that's cool. We will leave. Goodbye. Um, so they left, and they roundabout through Kentucky, ended up in southeastern Illinois around the time of the War of 1812. During that time, the U.S. government was really recruiting pioneers to come to this area to sort of have more settlers to assist in the sort of supply lines that was going to become the War of 1812. So they came and they built, they actually built a fort in that area, and they fought in the War of 1812. And then afterwards, they stayed because they got military land grants. The, the military or the U.S. government said, OK, everyone who helped, thanks, that's cool. You get 40 acres. And the, they were farmers. And so the land in southeastern Illinois is really great. It's really fertile. And it's good farmland. So they stayed. Um, and there was quite a few free African-American families who came as part of this, partly because often when you see the first wave of settlers or the first wave of pioneers in a place, a lot of times there are people who have been marginalized in, the, in other places who are sort of seeking somewhere kind of outside the systems of oppression that have kind of been giving them a raw deal to sort of find and start a new life. So they all, they all came over. They were there as early as 1806, but by the 1820s, quite a few of their family members had begun to join them and the, and the community really started growing. So the sites that I'm looking at, um, the, the earliest one dates from about, we're not entirely sure um, when the house was built, but sometime between 1830 and 1840, um, the house was built on this site. And this is um, Mason Morris and his wife Patience Morris were the ones who built the house. And they are my great, great, great grandparents. And they built this farmstead and they used the military grants, but then they become they became quite prosperous before the Civil War. And 
actually the black farmers in that area did did pretty well before the Civil War and they owned quite a lot of land. But then the Civil War happens, Jim Crow starts to take effect, things start to get really tough, and by the 20th century, almost all of their land has been has been lost through mostly predatory lending practices, pre- um, a lot of sort of racialized legal practices that made it difficult for them to hold on to their land. And so our site dates through all of that time period. So what's really interesting is we can see the ways that their farming practices changed, the way their hunting and food waste practices changed, the way entirely, essentially, um, a lot of their practices uh, and life ways changed to cope with this increasing impression, to cope with um, fewer and fewer and fewer opportunities and more and more and more economic and social prejudice. And what's really interesting is that even though the land owned by free African-Americans decreases during this time, the population doesn't. So people were getting by. People were, you know, having families and having social institutions and having lives. And so part of what I talk about are the ways in which people had, you know, really um, interesting, really um, full social lives, despite systems of oppression, right? The narrative is so often that everything was so bad and everything was so rough and every, everybody was so oppressed that, you know, they didn't succeed. But my point is this, the family succeeded. They, they stayed there. They had their churches. They had their institutions. So what is the conversation about what their lives were like and how they were so resourceful, how they were such a resourceful community of people that they got through all of this oppression? And so, yeah, so the stuff that I looked at, at sort of reflects how they did that. So what are some of the changes that you can see across time in your sample? So I've actually had an undergraduate research research assistant working with me, and we looked at the zooarchaeological materials, essentially animal bones. And this is really interesting um, when you're looking at this subset of materials on a farm, because in the beginning, they're pretty large-scale farmers. They're farming um, cattle and hogs, essentially, which is what a lot of people were farming in Illinois in the early to mid-19th century. And that changes from the 1840s to the 1920s. You stop you stop seeing that many domestic species, and you start seeing a lot more smaller wild species. So that means that their farms were decreasing a lot, so they didn't have the same access to cattle and hogs and those domestic sort of um, animals that you would raise and butcher. Instead, they switched to hunting more. So you see a lot more um, wild game, you see a lot more birds, you see a lot more fish. You see a little bit of a sort of a, a change in the, in the food waste practices since they couldn't do that same large-scale farming anymore. So that's pretty interesting. You see a lot of curation of materials. So what that means is people are holding on to stuff and fixing stuff. So when you look at when the stuff dates to, often the sort of ceramics and glass material will date to a little bit older than the site occupation. And that's because if you were a person who was sort of being economically marginalized more and more and more through time, you're going to try to hold on to the nice stuff that you had from when times were a little bit better, and you're going to fix it and you're going to work with it instead of throwing it out. So you see people holding on to um, older things and fixing and more of that kind of practices as time goes on as well. So how did these things get into the ground? Was the site just completely abandoned at one point? or One of them was and one of them was not. So I'm actually looking at two farm sets. The earlier one was abandoned in the 1920s. After So Mason and Patience left their farm to their two daughters, Martha and Eveline, who were unmarried for their entire lives and ran the farm essentially until they died in the 1920s. But they had to slowly sell off the land. Um, and so after they passed away in the 1920s, that site was abandoned. So that occupation is really interesting because it, you can see the stuff from when it was a large family farm and then from when it was also a female-run household as well, which lets us look at a lot of interesting things like gender practices and whatnot. 
so that one was essentially fell into disrepair and sort of like like houses do in the countryside kind of eventually fell in and fell down and was just sort of probably um, people would come after a few years after it was abandoned and you know take the valuable things and take the nice things you know like the in any sort of nice woodworking sometimes brick was very valuable so people would cart that kind of stuff away and then the rest of it would just kind of fall in and then eventually it was farmed so the first site is in a field and we found about 800 artifacts on our first surface collection and that's because when things are farmed you get something called the plow zone which is essentially where the plow like kicks up the earth to plant things and so that's the first 10 ish centimeters of the soil and so we went in just after harvest and so just after the field had been disked and so we picked up 19th century artifacts right up off the surface because the disc sort of kicked that up so that's that site uh, and then the second site is a house that's still being occupied so you have to excavate that obviously a lot differently from a house that is no longer there you have a lot of different information to work off of so since this there's standing architecture you can kind of base where you would like to excavate off of where the standing architecture is or where people remember other outbuildings to have been. Or we also had historic photographs, so we based a lot of excavation off that. But so to go back to your original question of how things get in the soil, it's actually sort of a process of just, it's called depositional processes, and it happens a lot of different ways. So people can either throw out their trash and have a trash pit that they just throw things into, and that's called a midden. So that's essentially when you dig a hole and throw your trash into it. And sometimes we find those and sometimes we don't. We also excavate often people's outhouses or their privies. So people threw a lot of trash into there, and that can be pretty interesting. Um, we didn't do any of that during this site, but that's another place that you find people's stuff. But you also find stuff in what we call activity areas, which are essentially things being kind of unintentionally discarded. So, for example, um, in our second site, we put some excavation units just off to the side of the front porch. And we found a lot of stuff that through the years had just been swept off the porch or people, you know, fallen out of people's pockets or, you know, people had dropped kind of things that get discarded during the practices of your life from day to day that kind of just end up in the soil. And then, you know, the next year the grass grows. So, you know, it's on the surface one year and the next year it's in the grass and then the next year it's under it. Just like if you leave anything out in your garden and you forget about it for a year, it's not going to be on the surface anymore, right? Just the natural movement of the soil and the natural process of that moving eventually puts things a little bit under the surface. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is the interview talk show, The Graduates, where we speak with graduate students here at UC Berkeley about their work. Today, I'm joined by Annalise Morris, who's telling us about her work in Illinois, archaeology of actually her own ancestors. Very interesting stuff. And you can't just say the words like female-run household and archaeology and then gloss over that. Did, what Did did you find anything to differentiate that female-run uh, occupation? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not, I guess the, the answer to that is I don't really know yet. <laughs> I'm still thinking a lot about the materials and and working on the interpretation of that. The materials that we found at that house definitely changed through time. And part of that is because it begins as a large family living in a place and then changes to two single women living in a place. And so Martha and Eveline necessarily have a different sort of assemblage of things than an entire family. And their assemblage looks a little bit different from the later site, because many, many, many more people lived at the later site, too, and many more generations of people. So, for example, at the second site, you see a lot of 
what we call adornment objects. So we found lots and lots of buttons and little pieces off of shoe grommets and um, the kind of things that are very quickly lost off of clothes, um, which really speaks to actually lot, many generations of children living at the site because often people would hand down their clothes from one person to one person to one person and really um, rework and redo everything, but essentially, you know, things would get reused a lot of times. So one of the easiest ways to make something your own when you get a hand-me-downs is put new buttons on it or put new ribbons on it or, you know, wear a little necklace or something to make it a little bit your own. So those are the kinds of things we found most abundantly, actually, at the second site. But part of that is because many generations of people are living there and also it's becoming, because it's one of the old, oldest homesteads in the area, by the early 20th century, it's become a really important sort of social gathering place. So you get lots of people visiting too. So that assemblage looks different because you have more people and a wider variety of people. Martha and Eveline's assemblage is a little bit more towards domestic type activity. So you see more things associated with Households. We have a lot of glass bottles, which are associated, which would have been beverage containers, um, but also pressed glass, which would have been sort of what we call tableware, like nice bowls and vases and kind of things for your tables. But also different kinds of patent medicine bottles. The sort of oral histories seem to indicate that Martha and Evelyn were knew a little bit about medicine, knew a little bit about like sort of what herbs to grow for healing and that kind of thing. And so my personal interpretation is that their assemblage reflects that a little bit more. But this is because they had a different vocation. They weren't necessarily um, farming land themselves. They were probably living in the house. You know, they would do their own things, like they probably made their own molasses, and they made their own butter, and they did a lot of those things in their homes. But they weren't necessarily doing the same kind of farm labor that um, the sort of large-scale farm would be. So you mentioned that you really wanted to connect with the community and and relate archaeology to the community. How do you think that your work is going to do that for this community? So we did that in lots of different ways. Um, and because this was my first time running my own project, a lot of it was sort of just trial and error, but also just asking people what they were interested in doing or learning because, you know, I, I mean, I know what I'm interested in, but I can't speak for everybody else. And so... For the most important thing, and I think the thing that I think got information about the site out to the most people was we had it open to the public every single day, and we took local volunteers. So essentially, I kind of put the word out there, and I gave some talks at the local historical society, but I also put it in the newspaper, and you know, I told people, and I called people, and I visited people, and was like, hey, we're doing these excavations, this is what I'm interested in learning, but let me know what you guys are interested in learning, and this is what some other people have thought, and... It's open every day. If you want to come, if you want to come help, if you want to bring your grandkids, um, I'm happy to give you a tour and show you what you're doing. I can give you some gloves and show you, you know, how to do this, and you can come as much or as little as you want. Um, and that's that sort of informal relationship, I think, worked very well because people felt like they could, like they were sort of a welcome friend guest social visitor as opposed to like today is the public day and today is the day you can come and if you want to help you have to go to this seminar and this talk and you know whatever it was just like come if you want um and see what we're doing and so we had it's also an area that doesn't have um it's a really rural area and there's not a whole lot going on in the summer so we had about 50 different visitors each season which doesn't sound like a lot but this site is just outside of a town of 4,500 people or it's like 
six miles away from a town of 4,500 people. So the community that was engaging with this site is pretty small to begin with. So 50 people, especially the first summer, we had the worst drought that Illinois had seen in 100 years, and it was the hottest summer that we'd had in the 100 years. So that amount of people coming out to see the site, for me, was very rewarding. And we had a lot of different groups come, too. We had descendants, just members of the community, neighbors coming over to see what was happening. But it was also a really um, great place for especially the descendant community to bring their kids and like grandkids, especially if they hadn't grown up in the area. So we could show them like, okay, this is, you know, this was, you know, Mason and Patience's farm. And this is where Martha and Eveline would have lived. And here's their stuff. And here's all of these, you know, artifacts from a time, especially that the younger people, you know, have a hard time associating with, especially because um, farming is not, uh, it's still an important part of the economy, but it's not usually what most of the descendant community uh, does vocationally anymore. Um, so it's also offers like the kids and grandkids a way to learn about their sort of ancestors way of life, um, which worked really well. Um, we also, I did a, a number of talks in the community, mostly just to share what we had found with people with the historical societies of different counties around. I also went to the local schools with the artif- with some of the artifacts, both the elementary and high schools, to talk about, so, Illinois history. So to say, you know, you've learned a lot about Illinois history, but let's talk a little bit about Lawrence County history. And did you know we had, you know, some of the first black pioneers coming to Illinois came to Lawrence County, and, uh, you know, this is what, where their farms were, and this is what their lives were like, and here's some of this stuff. For the elementary school kids, you know, it's mostly just like, here is, you know, a a farming tool. What do you guys think that's for? And that kind of stuff and teaching them about history. For the older students, it's about learning, you know, how diverse their history really is. But also part of it is, as somebody who's from there, it was great to go back and say, hey, you know, I was from here. I grew up in this rural place um, and I'm an archaeologist. I'm using science in my life, and so you can do that too. And, you know, here are some things I was interested in high school, and this is what made me do this in college. But, you know, so think about the things you're interested in and, like, and just to show them that they can because the area I am I am from, not a huge percentage of, of people end up going to college after high school and that kind of thing. So just to show them the kinds of opportunities that are available to them too is sort of a, like a secondary um, part of the project. The project also maintained... A blog for a while. We haven't been quite as good at it in the past few months, but while we were in the field, we maintained a blog so that if people were curious about coming to the site, they could go to the website. It had, you know, directions, and we would update every week with, you know, what we had found that week and where we were excavating and that kind of thing and pictures. And then once we got back to the lab, we did some updates on, okay, here's some of the stuff we found and here's what we think it is and um, here's what we think it would have been used for and that kind of thing. So I know that being able to be directly involved in a community, your own community like that is sort of a unique, you know, a unique opportunity in archaeology. But also here in this local community, mm-hmm. there's a lot of archaeology going on. I know what the missions, the Presidio, the Shell mm-hmm. Mounds. Um, can you mention any of sort of local stuff people could get interested in? Yeah, the Presidio is a great place um, to learn a little bit about archaeology. They've got um, they've got some things you can look at there in their various sort of museum areas, and also they, they'll do tours as well if you if you inquire about um, what kind of projects they've done and the projects they've done in the past. They've got an archaeologist there, they've got a park archaeologist, and so they've always got some kind of um, archaeological project going on that you can definitely investigate while you're over there. And they have lots and lots of different kinds of sites in the Presidio. It has a wide variety of archaeological sites. There's obviously 
um, because the Presidio went through so many different occupations and there's native sites and there's Spanish sites and all this stuff. So that's very interesting. Most of the, there's lots and lots of (laughs) parks around here who have park archaeologists doing different kinds of projects and that kind of thing. So if you're interested in um, participating in archaeological studies, inquiring at those places would probably be your first step also. Um, if you're a student here at Berkeley, like I said before, there's we do the undergraduate research apprenticeship program. So you apply for that in the spring and the fall, and that's if you're interested in, in working in a lab or learning a little bit more hands-on um, work about the sites, and that's a really good way to get some university credit and to learn a cool skill that looks good on your resume Um, and people are always accepting they have a wide variety of different projects um, doing that as well. And just sort of to finish up even outside of our own communities why and I don't mean to play devil's advocate here but why should people care about archaeology and anthropology? Oh man that's an excellent question. Um, I think even if you're not going to make anthropology or archaeology your life's work It's a really interesting way to know the world around you in a really more complex way than you might otherwise. I always tell students that learning about the past is really important because it tells you a lot about the present. And becoming a person who thinks about the world as an anthropologist is a worldview that will really help you think critically about not only about the world around you, but about people and their social and cultural practices. And it can also help you be a little bit more um, informed of a citizen. If you think about, you know, really anything from current events to politics, you have to know about the past to, to understand what's happening in the present. So if you think about it, both as an archaeologist, you know, how are how is our world shaped by things? And so how, how do all of the things that we use and consume, where do they come from? Who do they come from? And how does that affect not only us, but sort of the geopolitics of the world, but also anthropologically, you know, sort of, this is an area with a lot of different cultures meeting and speaking to one another and interacting. And if you think about sort of what makes our culture what it is today, well, you have to think about how we got here and the sort of our cultural practices in the past. Well, thank you very much. And I think that's about going to wrap it up for us here at The Graduates. Uh, Today, I've been joined by archaeologist Annalise Morris telling us about the first free black farms in Illinois and archaeology and, you know, all sorts of great anthropological things. Thank you so much, Annalise. Do you have any last words for the audience? Anything you want to make sure that they know? Oh, man. Um, thanks for having me. This has been really interesting. I don't know, man. Think about the past. It's important now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you really summed that up about uh, informing the present. And, and yeah, no. Thank you again. And that's right. You've been tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. And we'll be back two weeks from today for another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.